0: This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. How tough will we be if we lose 124,000 employees going on strike? And 35,000 of them potentially who work with the CRA. I might be one of many that is, oh yeah, this would be a good week to do our taxes. And I said that last week and the week before and the week before that around the house. Um, Canada Revenue Agency agents. And those that work there, even on an hourly basis, may go out on strike. And naturally, you gotta, I don't think you can go on strike unless, A, you got big-time union backing, and B, you've got some leverage. People will miss you. We saw that in the fall, certainly, with uh, early childhood educators and some, uh, and some education workers who were under the, under the QP union banner. We met with kids. The teachers said we, we can't teach school without them. And so they didn't for a couple days. Um, there is obviously some consideration that unions will often support unions, whether it's their fight or not. I get that. I understand that. I think there are industries that are like that. I think the auto industry, though it's competitive, picks up for each other. I do think that. Um, I think even in the media, sometimes you're battling other people, other companies, other radio stations, TV stations. But you don't want to see chaos in the industry. You don't want that. This might be a little bit different because I, I know that brewing post pandemic, there has very much been a public private tension in terms of workers. I know that that is true. Things are tough out there, I think, in the private sector. You worry about not just the inflationary costs that you feel, but does your company look and say, well, we're going into recessionary time, so we're going to have to scale back a little bit. Now, that may be in raw jobs. That may even be in how much work you get or the benefits you get, or you used to travel and now you don't. You used to go to company parties and now you can't. You used to have an expense account and now you don't. This is going to be interesting to see where this goes and how this affects our our just general disposition about this stuff. Let me tell you what the, for example, the Union of Taxation Employees wants. They're an arm of the public ser- service workers in Canada, Public Service Association of Canada. They rep CRA workers uh, and they want an annual wage increase the next three years of four and a half percent, eight percent and eight percent. Um, are, are you getting that? Did you? Did you get that in the last no four and a half percent one year and then eight percent another year and then eight percent another year that remember also there can't be replacement workers during these uh, strikes there's not going to be the quote unquote scabs this union's got some leverage here because people are going to want their taxes done businesses are going to want some tax refunds back if they put in all year. And this, this ends up being a scenario where when we talk about how people get upset about private money, I'm like, well, that is a private industry. It's a little bit like an athlete. That athlete makes this, that recording artist makes this, he has a contract, but you don't have to buy the record and you don't have to go to, uh, and, and pay 200 bucks for a Leafs ticket. You do need to go to the grocery store. You do need to file your taxes and you are paying the salary of people who work in, in the public sphere. You're not paying mine. I really appreciate that you, um, you know, help out the advertisers. And I appreciate that you're listening to my voice right now, more than you could ever imagine. We all do, but that's, I don't have a public service job and I never have. I never have. I'd also make the point that the private sector knew when the pandemic hit, oh my goodness, feels like the, what, like, what are we going to do? How can we fix this? What's our, what are our bosses going to do? How are they going to protect us? And we had to sort of dodge and weave a touch more than the public sector did. And then there's our moods. So many of these jobs are very essential. Service Canada handles your passports, right? We just got passports back on track. Veteran Affairs Canada could go on strike. They could have a significantly reduced capacity to process new payments for the men and women that have gone into the military for us. That doesn't sound great either. And yeah, then there's 35,000 workers in strike position today with the Canada Revenue Agency. Now, of note on the CRA, really quick, they have to give 72 hours notice, and they haven't yet. But yes, increased wait times and great concern about where this goes. And once they're out, you don't wander in back in after two or three days. And again, I'll give you those numbers, four and a half percent, eight percent, eight percent. If there's a raise like that in the private sector with any company, Outside of like a performance bonus, I don't know about it. I don't know about it. So um, that public-private tension certainly ends up existing. We'll miss them if they go on strike. We will miss them. This isn't a service we can ignore, but they know that. And that's why they think they've got some leverage here. Um, Remember, when COVID hit, a lot of federal organizations sent staff home. Every one of them kept getting paid. Every one of them could work from home. All of them did that. And many of them have said, I don't want to come back in now. I like it at home. That's sort of that public-private wobble as well. And, and the public workers seem to think they've got that leverage there. New computers, new desks, new tech, new this, new phones. They gave them all that, and we paid for that. And I'm not sure we shouldn't have. I'm not saying we shouldn't have but it's a big difference than uh, what private industry has ended up going through. This is Toronto today with Greg Brady, Toronto's news. Today's talk six forty, Toronto. Uh, we had, um, I, I wish we'd been able to talk for longer, but Robin Parker came on. She is a lawyer and a mediator um, and also a, uh, a victim of a sexual assault uh, that her case went to trial in 2018, but she's of the mind that we need to have a different um, way here. And she, I, I found the conversation uh, amazing. And I found the conversation the the, the stat she put out there w- would have shocked me because she said still in Canada, we have one out of 25 percent of people who suffer from a sexual assault uh, coming forward and wanting to prosecute. And there, as we talked about it during the, the you know, the organic nature of the chat we had the idea is, look, there's two things you can happen that, that can happen. You go to the police and you and you say this is what's happened to me. And, and then a, a case starts getting built to to prosecute. So there's charges or you just sit there and never, ever get any sense of of closure or what's now being referred to as restorative justice. And she wants to find a middle ground here, which I find kind of fascinating because I can't put myself in a woman's shoes who, but I have had, you know, three friends, I think, over the course of my life say this happened to me. None of them mm. went to the police. None of them could be, like two of them didn't even wow. tell their parents. I think I've told the story about a, a ex-girlfriend I had, but a girlfriend yes. at the time in Mexico who was who was randomly attacked by a stranger. And he also figured out where she lived. And he sent her a letter and said, don't don't wow. ever come back here. And like it got to her parents house because but you he, weren't
1: dating her at the time. This is what happened. You She told you this. This she, happened before you started dating. She, well,
0: she it's uh, its a long sort of drawn out story, but she she had broken up with me and I'm like, oh, I thought things were going really well. But then two months later, she called and said, I want to see oh. you and I want to tell you why I broke up with you. When you're 20 and 19, you know, you break up with somebody or get ticked when the wind blows the wrong way, right? So I'm like, okay, th- these these are things that happen to people that are 19 or 20, but there was a really serious reason behind it because this had happened to her about three months before I met her. So I was probably the first guy she dated after this happened but i didn't know that there was some serious uh, terrible horrible trauma involved but she never went to the pol- what's she going to do go to the mexican police When she's on a plane two days later, she wasn't going to.
1: I mean, so here's the thing. I learned so much from yesterday's conversation. Mm -hmm. Robin Parker, who's a lawyer, who's been a lawyer in Toronto for over two decades, joined you yesterday. And I've been speaking to lots of different people about that conversation. And I start with talking with them about restorative justice. And a lot of them ask me, well, what do you mean by that? What is restorative justice? And here's how she explained it. I'm
2: part of a group who are trying to work towards having the Minister of Justice, both provincially and federally, understand that there's a very large group of survivors who want alternatives. You know, um, in 2018, StatsCan surveyed 43,000 Canadians, and only five percent of people in that group who'd been sexually assaulted in the previous 12 months reported. That's 95 percent of people who aren't reporting. And another stat just to chew on is that 30% of Canadian women say they've been sexually assaulted. That's about 6 million women. So we know that these people are not inside the justice system. And the question is, why? Why and how are we failing them?
1: And what she means by that is that what she went into is that restorative justice is sort of like, I guess you could describe it as like a, like a rehabilitation where instead of going through the court system and giving them throwing the book at them, what does that really change? So it's about sitting down with them face to face, which I can imagine how difficult that would be as the victim and really explaining to them how this action that they did affected your life.
0: And and I'll I'll sit only in the chair of the victimizer or alleged victimizer to say, is there a benefit to saying to getting a lawyer and saying this is what's being offered for me. Isn't this better than going in front of the court system? Yes. Cause I, I think so much about, I brought up the, the Gomeshi um, trial and, and the multitude of accusers, given how high profile that was for all of us that lived in Toronto at the time. And I think how empty the accusers must've felt after that process was restored. They have to, she, but they have to reveal really personal humiliating details and they have to sit there while a lawyer picks them apart and said, yeah, but you emailed him two days later, or you dated this so person. Humiliating. It's humiliating.
1: Yeah, so she speaks about that. She speaks about how, first of all, when this happens to a victim, how much shame that they have. These victims, of, and that more and more people are coming forward, uh, but they want to speak with their accusers and just talk to them how how it affected them. And that I didn't know this. Anyone who doesn't want to testify in court for whatever reason has the charges withdrawn. That's something I didn't mm-hmm. know. So you did talk about Christine Blasey Ford, Amber Heard, Gian Gomeshi's victims, and here's what Robin had to say on that. Christine
2: Blasey Ford is a hero, and uh, she she knew what she was doing, mm-hmm. and she knew what the result would be, and she did it so she could speak. She was empowering herself and other women by telling her her her, her what happened to her, um, and I do think, although um, it's really disappointing. Uh, <laughs> It's, it's really hard to wrap your head around the fact that um, he was still appointed to the Supreme Court. But when we look at the system as a whole overall, you know, crime in Canada is actually decreasing. And sexual violence is the only crime that is staying steady or yeah. increasing slightly. And so we have to ask ourselves, just sort of in a big picture way, you know, how can we change the system? Because what we're doing now isn't working
1: She's not wrong.
0: She's not wrong. And no. I, I'm sure, like, I, I think of even a case like, we, we talked a ton about the, the headley singer, mm-hmm. Jacob Hogard. Now, you and I might say, Jacob Hogard belongs in, in jail for what he did. Okay, like, a- absolutely. That, that could very well be true. That might exactly be true. But if there'd been contact between Hogard and his lawyer, and he said, I'm willing to sit in front of my victim if I'm Jacob Hogard... And offer some sort of um, you know, mediation. And I will look you in the eye and say, I got this wrong and I did something bad to you and I see it. Instead, they, they won't admit that in court. All these people are gonna plead not guilty because they know they can drag it through the legal system. They know they've got but they've got money to That's defend it. themselves, and they're gonna That's bleed it. the other person dry in terms of in terms of the prosecution. So, so it's not like, I, yeah, Jacob Hogart probably deserves to be in jail for what he did. He went he was sentenced to five years, and he still is facing another charge. But somebody might say, uh, if honestly, and it it is it doesn't end up being about money specifically for the victim, but if if he looks you in the eye and says, "I did something terrible and I need to learn from this, and I want you to know that I know what I did to you." That's half, I don't know what percentage of making it better that is, but it's better than zero. And you will never get that in court. Am I right? No,
1: you won't. You won't. And you know, Robin Parker, she had her own experience in 2018 sexual assault. And I just want to play really quickly this yeah. clip that, where she had to say this. I
2: was one of those people. Mm-hmm. And um, for some reason, the Crown agreed in my case to give me restorative justice in 2018. Is that because I'm a lawyer with 28 years of experience? Because I knew people in the system? I don't know, and I'm incredibly grateful to that crown for taking that risk and giving me that opportunity because it made a huge difference in my life and I saw the difference that it made to the person who had harmed me. And I just want to be able to build a pathway for other survivors women and the men too who are now starting to come forward and speak more openly Mm. about harm they experience to have another option so that maybe more of us can have that conversation and we can generate change make society safer
1: and she talks about male sexual assault which is not spoken about at all uh Mm. so nearly 99 percent of perpetrators are male but according to the rape abuse and incest national network one out of every 10 rape victims is male
0: yeah Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's got some merit to it where you sit there and go, I don't want this person to go to jail for 20 years. I don't even want their life ruined, but I want them to look me in the eye and tell me they get what they did. And here's how they plan to make it right. That just seems better than a than a huge trial and a costly process in some ways. It won't be for everybody, but I think we got to consider it as an option. And she pointed out right now, Ontario doesn't allow accusations or charges of sexual justice to be handled this way in mediation and robin's saying maybe it should is a great conversation yesterday and we definitely want to talk to robin again this is toronto today with greg brady toronto's news today's talk 640 toronto we're joined in studio right now um, by the former member for davenport on toronto city council um Anna Bailau it's great to have you in studio with us
3: great to be here
0: yeah are, are we your first visit this morning by the way are you an early morning person by nature or a I late am. night vampire and er, no. you more early mornings no. than late night
3: more, more of a, an early morning yeah
0: I used to I be, get my
3: energy in the morning
0: I, I used to be that university student that would fall like uh, and you'd work in a restaurant till two o'clock so you'd be up till four o'clock and you'd look and go there's a class starting in five hours and then then to switch to an early morning person and fall asleep at 9.30 every night with your wife trying to watch a television show with you and bumping you. It's very hard. I,
3: I, I in high school, I had a part-time every night from uh, 5.30 to 9.30. And, uh, I would actually, most days get up really early to do my homework even before going to school because <laughs> I was too tired at night. So I think that got me in the habit of getting up really early and be, uh, alert on alert, uh, really early.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I'd ask you this, 11 days in, you put your papers in and you announced you'd put your papers in long before that. You are the first candidate to speak with our show and say, I'm in and this is a job that I want. Are you, has anything in the last two and a half weeks made you more confident, equally confident, less confident that you can win this?
3: Uh, it, it, it's, I, I'm more excited uh, because this is the part of the campaign that I re- really start to enjoy it. I'm out uh, in the communities, and I really enjoy you know being out speaking to people, talking about ideas uh, and and I love that part of the campaign. So that's where we are in that process and and that gets me really excited.
0: I've asked a few other candidates this. would you have you, you wanted to not run again in city council last summer in the last fall? planned your four years accordingly, but but knowing John wasn't going to run in 2026, did you even eye that from afar and wonder whether that would be, whether you'd feel renewed, whether you'd miss it? When people take a break from anything in life, they're like, will I miss it or will I realize that was a chapter that's concluded your political public life and I'm willing to do something else? How did you view 26 last summer at this time?
3: You know, I, I, I left to go build affordable housing, something that I'm very passionate about, that I worked 12 years at council for. And so I left to focus on that. Uh, I'm not somebody that had planned all my life to be in politics. Mm-hmm. I come to politics to get things done and to give back. And it's uh, at a point in time, what my skills are and what does the city need and this job needs to, do- to be done? Am I the best person? That's how I look at things. And right now, uh, I look at it and say, I, I have uh, the leadership, the experience, the ideas of what the city needs. And that's why I'm jumping into Mm. it Uh, in 2026. uh, I don't know. I can't. uh, Yeah. No crystal ball. I I don't have a crystal (laughs) ball. I wish I did. Some days I wish I did. Uh, But uh, uh, this is the situation that we are right now. And and I think that we need somebody that really has the experience uh, to to. Fix services inside yeah. City Hall to work with councillors, to work with other orders of government, really important. We're facing challenges on transit, on housing, and those are issues that you really need to work with other orders of government. You need that experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need uh, to have somebody that uh, that is going to focus on just making life easier and more affordable for people. I think that's what Torontonians are really looking forward.
0: Anna Baila in studio with us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Um, this news about Ontario Place, last week it's, it's an odd work week, because we all had Good Friday, but Thursday, a week ago yesterday, was all about um, some candidates' plans for Ontario Place. And you were the first person to have the innovative idea to move Ontario Place, or excuse me, the Ontario Science Centre down towards the Ontario Place grounds, where there's all sorts of debate about plans that I want to get into. But yesterday, the Premier says, I think it's a good idea and there could be a pending announcement. Um, What are the benefits of? moving the Ontario Science Centre to Ontario Place? And when did this sort of first start to percolate in your own brain that this would be feasible even?
3: Well, it started to percolate because it really bothers me that with all the issues that we have in the city of Toronto, you know, safety, reliability on TTC, housing, all these issues, pressing issues that we need everybody to be focused on and delivering. This is what our city needs. That's why I'm running. That's what I'm standing up for. We're talking about... Uh, $500 million the, the you know, Doug Ford is saying we're going to provide $500 million to subsidize a private spot that most Torontonians can afford. And that's not a priority for Toronto. That's not a priority for Torontonians. And that's why I think it is important to stand up to that and say, no, That's we, we can't be spending that kind of money on mm-hmm. that. What we need is housing. What we need is to fix services. And so this alternative of having an Ontario Science Centre that you know, needs to be renovated. And and we have a great science community, a great tech community that is doing really well in the, in the city. So why not have a state-of-the-art facility uh, and maintain Ontario Place public, maintain it for families, maintain a beautiful park, and build housing? Because that's what we need. And so the the space, the parking lots where the Ontario Science Centre uh, currently is could be uh, a really uh, amazing transit-oriented community. It's going to be at the end of the transit line, and we could have uh, affordable housing, 5,000 units of housing, 1,500 of affordable housing, and use the existing facility to have a great community hub to service uh, that community as well. It's a heritage building, so mm-hmm. nobody's talking about demolishing. You know, that's, yeah. that's not what we're talking about, demolishing that building. But it could be really a good community hub with services to serve all that community, including the, the new residents as well. But I think what people are are having a hard time uh, uh, supporting is this idea that we're now going to privatize our waterfront and subsidize a private company, a private spa that most of us won't be able to, to go To the tune of five hundred million
0: dollars. I I I want to talk about that for sure and the therm proposal. Um, When I think about the Ontario Science Center, you mentioned the parking lot. I'm glad you did because that's most of the space. And by the way, anybody that's ever gone there uh, with little kids on a Saturday at noon goes to the back of the parking lot. So I know it's a gigantic parking lot and has the space. Do you visualize townhouses? Do you visualize five story, six story? Um apartments what what when when you see it in its in its finished state, what kind of housing do you see there?
3: It, it would be a transit oriented community, so it would be you know um, there there's there needs to be some density in there, yeah, uh, in order also to make the affordable housing work. You know, when people talk about building affordable housing, uh, sometimes uh, they don't understand that the math needs to work. <laughs> we need to pay for these things and mm-hmm. it's a, it, it, there's a cost to it. And so there has to be some density. But the fact that that land is publicly owned allows us to build affordable housing in there. And that's what Torontonians need. You know, our workers are not able to live in our city. Our uh, youth is not able to live in our city. We need to be looking at every opportunity to build housing in the city and to build housing, you need three orders of government to come together. You need the city, you need the province, and you need the federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've done a lot of it <laughs> over over my, my 12 years and even uh, this little bit that I was outside politics. You need the three orders of government. And that's why I came to the table and said, listen, I don't think this Ontario Place's g- proposal is a good proposal. We need... Uh, beautiful public space in our in our waterfront. Uh, we need a state-of-the-art uh, facility, but it needs to be a public institution, something like the Ontario Science Centre. But let's focus on the priorities of Torontonians. Let's make sure that we can work together uh, in building the housing that we need and fixing the transit. I mean, what are people talking about today? The challenges that they're facing is that you know, they have to opt sometimes to drive because they don't feel safe getting into the TTC or it's taking too long. We keep hearing about cuts to the to the TTC. And and that that's that's what we should be focusing on. How do we fix that? How yeah. do we bring the ridership yeah. back to the TTC?
0: Yeah, I'm eager to talk about uh, uh, transit after the, after the eight o'clock news for sure with you. I, I also think and I made this distinction earlier. I think it's important to clarify that candidates like yourself aren't aren't saying hey, Ontario is the biggest election issue. Uh, I don't think it is by a long shot. I'm not sure it's one of the top three issues, but it is a little bit of a microcosm about what do we value? What do we value public versus private? What do we value in terms of In terms of access. And I I think the one skepticism I have about the science center going down there per se is it will. Yeah, of course, the where it is now would be fantastic to put housing on and put more people in the city's core. But I also look downtown and think there aren't that many people unless you've got little kids, unless you've got you're not a frequent goer to the science center but it does matter what's on our waterfront and there has to be some element of privatization i look at what chicago's done i just think there's a city that really figured it out figured out how to how to leave a lot of stretch along lake michigan open but have navy pier and have restaurants and have boat trips and whatnot they figured out how to have that balance and we have yet to get there
3: yeah and i think uh, an institution like uh, the ontario science center which you know for anybody that has been there recently, knows that it needs, needs quite an a bit an upgrade. Yep. Uh, but having an institution like that and working with our our commu- tech community, science community, you could have a great state of the art facility. The subway is going to go in there. There's going to be ghost stops in there. You could have you know a regional approach to the, to uh, a science center, an Ontario Science Center, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that that's that's what it's called. And you could use the existing facility to create incredible community uh, programming for the communities uh, uh, around that area as well, where it currently exists. So I see that, that as a win-win, right? And the focus on what people need. And what we need right now is the housing. What we need right now is governments to be, fi- to be laser-focused on making sure that we are addressing the TTC. Mental health, you know the mental health issues that we're we were seeing that we're having our healthcare system that's what we need the money to go honestly mm. you know having a huge spa that we can't afford is not the way to go
0: mm. we've got uh, mayoral candidate and longtime city councilor and longtime deputy mayor Anna Bailow with us in studio also i don't okay. want to call you former radio host you were in hosting Toronto this weekend earlier in the year and you did two shows and you're like it's too easy it's just <laughs> too easy it's just exactly. it's just you read from the teleprompter all the qu- everything's written out it's, there's no skill to it. I prove that at five days a week. Um, the gardener and the DVP is, I wouldn't call it a passion project of yours, but you're very, very vocal about what you want to do with the province. And I asked you last time we were on the phone, what are the conversations? How could they manifest themselves with the province to make them recognize? I think there's a responsibility on the province. We even mentioned that to the former mayor before, and the former mayor even speculated about about tolling that for people from the nine oh five like myself. I don't pay Toronto taxes, but I use the I use the D V P and some of the Gardener every single day. And it's a lovely way to get from point A to B, but I kind of pay nothing for it. And your concept is anybody that's benefiting this from outside the city proper should pay into it, basically. And the province can do that.
3: Yeah, because, you know, it- All the other cities around us uh, don't pay for the highways. You probably use the QEW uh, sometimes, once in a while. Do 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 you even notice when you're getting off the garden in the QEW? You don't but mm-hmm. the taxpayers of Toronto do because they're the only ones paying for the maintenance and the upkeep of the gardener and the DVP. And it's over $200 million a year that we're uh, spending to fix those, uh, those highways that used to be provincial highways up to the 90s uh, and that uh, um, we're spending all this money and 50% of the users are from outside Toronto. So mm-hmm. when Toronto is facing the challenges like like we've been talking about in the first segment on transit, on housing, uh, and, and on our on our roads, we really should be using that money to fix those uh, those services as well. And uh, this is this is the the problem that we're having with the way that cities are financed and that the city of Toronto is financed, right? And so when you have uh, a city of over three million people being financed the same way that and when it was basically with a uh, hundred thousand. Uh, and yeah. with so many of these issues, it doesn't make sense. And so we need a fair deal. We need uh, we need to be fair with the, with the city that brings the most amount of money. And we're bringing tons of money because everything is going up as well. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, for example, the HST that we all pay when we go to the store and used to spend hundred dollars and now spend one hundred and fifty dollars. That's a lot a lot more HST that the federal and provincial government are collecting. The city is not getting that money, right? We don't get that money, so that money is going to the the province and the feds, and we're struggling with issues like the TTC, like the housing. And so, if we want to have uh, a city where residents succeed, where we we have uh, you know economic growth, we need to make sure that we people are, are are being able to afford to live here, and that's why we need those resources. To make sure that um, we make life easier and more affordable for people here. I've
0: so- never, I've never understood it in in my lifetime to try and figure it out. You you go to the states, and I lived there for ten years, and you know that. The city of Detroit can can it has their own city tax and Chicago does and New York does. So when you think about tourism and what it provides, even if it's a, a smidge of a percentage of that HST, which could stay in cities, A, there's incentives for sure, because some of that money is staying in the city proper to be spread back out in infrastructure or, or yeah, nice things that would draw people to your city like we were talking about in the first segment. I, I've talked to people who live in the States or live in Europe, they don't understand it because the Londons, the Parises, the Madrids, they and, can raise their own revenue and we can't.
3: And you know what Torontonians don't understand is that there's there's everybody talks about having one taxpayer, which, mm-hmm. I, which I agree. And with all these challenges, why aren't we getting more in Toronto when we produce 20% of the GDP? And people right now, they're struggling right? Yeah. They're, they're struggling when they can't get into the TTC on time and can get to work on time. They're struggling when you know they, they, they can't afford to live in, in the city. They spend 70% of their income in rent. They're struggling. And so what they want is to make sure that as one taxpayer, we get a fair deal so we can make their life a little bit easier. And that's why I talk about the province and, and taking responsibility for the garden and the DVP. It's such a fair argument It's such a fair argument that we need to use that money to make sure that we invest in our services because we are the only municipality that is paying for those highways around here. You know, like I I said, you know, other municipalities don't pay for their highways. And there's $30 billion in the provincial uh, budget right now for highways. So Why not add these in there so that we can make sure that we continue to provide good services in the city of Toronto? that at the end of the day, benefit the provincial government.
0: So you're selling me, but I'm not Doug Ford and I'm not the Doug Ford majority government that you could potentially be working with for the next three years. How do you convince them to take on some of the pie here?
3: You know what? They've been coming at the end of the year with a check during the pandemic, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every year, there's been a, a, a deficit in our budget, and at the end of the year, they've been coming. Half of that deficit has been created by the low ridership in the TTC. We're not going to attract people back in the TTC if we don't invest in the TTC by having services on time, reliable services, by having safety, making sure that we have cameras, making sure that we have staff on our platforms, making sure that our stations are clean, making sure that we have Wi-Fi. You've heard me talk about about, a lot of that. If we don't have that stuff, we're not going to bring back. So we're never going to deal with the issue, with the root cause of you know, almost half of the deficit that we have right now. So this is a very practical solution that I'm telling the province, again, you know, I'm about common sense, practicality, and saying we all represent these constituents. There is one taxpayer. We need to make sure that we are providing these services. And at the end of the day, we fix the services, we fix the budget, and we have a fair deal because... We are the only city paying. for There this are highway.
0: certainly look. There's a huge confluence of problems here. One, one obviously was um, the pandemic. Can yeah. I just say one thing? Yeah.
3: I mean, he, he he comes around. I mean, even yesterday, he did agree that uh, the Ontario Science Centre was a good idea. So you know, it, it, well, but that made pe- me
0: think he'd been thinking about it for a lot it, longer it, than it, one it, day. It, it I
3: Who knows? But I I I'm going to be keeping going on this. Yeah. And one more thing as well. I think it's important to uh, that I to say that I am running on this. And and I don't think there's anything stronger than the power of people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to take with me to the, the province and the federal government. And that's why I'm talking a lot about this, because you're not going to solve the issues, the fiscal issues of the city, if you're not going to have a mayor that is going to be strong in dealing with the province and the feds.
0: John Tory was very adamant about people coming back to work and people coming back to offices. You're in a gigantic building here that I can assure you um, was more full three years ago than it is now. I don't know where it goes. There's a lot of us back, which is great. But at the same time, do you worry about a lot of these um, business buildings, a lot of huge buildings? The Globe and Mail has a huge building. The Toronto Star obviously has a huge building. The future of the city is, I think, a little bit of a coin toss right now across North America, whether it's whether it's for transit issues, whether it's work from home issues, whatever. How do we find that sort of happy medium that that has people coming back? You can't make people and and private businesses insist on their employees coming back five days a week. But a lot of these businesses need people more in the downtown core than they are right now.
3: Yeah, but, but there are things that are very impactful. and I know that we've been talking about the TTC, but for example, making sure that we have safe and reliable TTC is going to make people more comfortable to come back to the downtown core if they know they can get on the TTC. So things like this is things that the city can do. Mm. How we can work with the employers to make it more attractive as a downtown core. Um, How do we create an economic development plan for the downtown? How do we, uh, you know, talk about uh, having even more residential on the downtown? You know, I've been talking with a lot of people for for example, in, in, on Hospital Row. They're having a hard time attracting nurses and doctors because of the price of housing. Absolutely. Because our nurses and our doctors and our paramedics, even us at the city, they can't afford to live in the city and they choose other municipalities to work. So that's why I'm so focused on this issue of fixing services and the housing because it, it has a big impact on our services and on our economic uh, well,
0: growth. it's it's one thing to cut a lot of the red tape for for medical professionals and say, well, now, you know, you were registered to work in this province. We'll make this faster. But what's the incentive for somebody economically to move from Halifax or Regina or Edmonton or Calgary to live in, in downtown Toronto? Or There's not if, one.
3: Even if you Cause have they're going to make
0: the same salary.
3: Exactly. So uh, it is re- these issues of affordability mm. are very, very important for people's lives and for the city's uh, the, the city growth and the city's future and mm-hmm. that's why I'm so laser-focused on this, laser-focused on making sure that we get what we need from the province and the feds. That starts with them taking responsibility for the gardener and the DVP. We need that money to reinvest in our services. That's why I'm so focused on fixing services mm-hmm. like the TTC um, and, and, and the affordability of the housing. Uh, these are mm-hmm. crucial issues, and we need a mayor that has mm-hmm. the experience to deliver on that and uh, and the capacity to deal with the other orders of government.
0: Anna Bylaw is running for mayor of Toronto. The election is June 26. Um, thanks for coming in. We're both talkers, so we can only get to so much, right? But it's good.
3: We could be here for a few hours.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming in today and Thank thanks you. for spending the time and have a great weekend. Anna Bylaw, that's uh, of course not the last you'll be hearing from her certainly on our show. She wants your vote on June 26. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Sometimes one story begets another. Another. Yesterday, we saw that uh, Premier League soccer teams are going to withdraw gambling sponsorships from the front of their kit. Um, that England and European soccer has been unique for a long, long time, where the advertisement's almost bigger than the logo, and we're not getting there yet with the NBA or the NHL. That's more like a corner patch or whatever. But the biggest, you know, verbiage on the jersey, on the kit, is the gambling company or the sponsor. And eight of 20 clubs in the Premier League have, um, have betting companies as sponsors. So the Premier League says that's going to stop. Now, that's not for another three seasons. So um, Premier League clubs say that won't be allowed. And remember, betting is a little more baked in. Like the very first time I went to a match, you can you, you go to a corner window and you can make a bet. and You get a little piece of paper, like when you're at the racetrack. But it's all different now. Right. With phones and computers and laptops, et cetera, et cetera. So where is this going to go with us here? And I've said one story begets another. And now the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario says we need a change here. No more athletes, no more celebrities in gambling ads. I don't know where um, where that's going to go, but companies could potentially have only a few months to comply with the new standards. So that's no more Austin Matthews for the company he endorses. No more Connor McDavid to uh, comment on both those issues. um, We're going to speak to somebody who's pretty dialed in on on this front um, and on the digital landscape, working for a company that's got a lot going for them. uh, Head of partnerships at Playmaker Capital. He is Adam Seaborn. Adam, thanks a lot for coming on the show. No problem, Greg. Good to see you. Yeah, let's address the latter issue first. Um, and and you and I were talking a little bit yesterday, and you said there there has been a bit of a, a controversy and a bit of a slippery slope. But especially, I think, with current NHL players endorsing betting companies per se, and and you said you, you didn't see that lasting for that much longer. But you know, the Jamie Foxes and the Jerry Ds and the and the others. I don't know that we thought that they would get cut off. Has this got potential to just wipe out anybody that's well known at all being able to endorse a betting company in Ontario?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. Let's Let's go back to kind of the origins of this. Remember the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, they were totally against even the idea of betting, right? Just a few years ago, the idea that anybody in the NHL would be involved in sports betting seemed crazy. One of the things, though, that has led to the current environment is the fact that, as you touched on, it's been, you know, popular in Europe for a very long time. Think of Scandinavia, specifically with NHL players. Mm -hmm. So the NHLPA had a carve out for those players. Think Matt Sundin, think all the great Swedes to in the summers, be able to go home and make some endorsement money from sports betting, which was totally legal in those countries. So that's why that carve out existed with the NHLPA. They said, Listen, we got to protect our union, we protect our players, they need the ability to make money. So even though gambling wasn't legal in North America, Ah, uh, players should be able to endorse sports books, you know, in Europe when they're in, in the off season. Matt Sundin did for a long time, so that's kind of the framework that led to where we are now. Sports betting becomes legal in North America. Well, that same framework, you know, the NHLPA says, well, now that it's legal here, there's no reason why, as you say, conor McDavid and Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner can't sign endorsement deals with with sports books here. Uh, I think that that is obviously coming to an end uh, with the AGCO's current announcement. The second point though about celebrity as opposed to current athlete I think is a little bit um, more of a more of a spectrum you know what exactly is an influencer or celebrity? How do you kind of legislate that? I don't think the AGCO wants to be legislating that you know they don't want to be legislating bet mgm who has a you know global deal with Jamie Fox saying that well mm-hmm. just in the province of ontario you can't have jamie fox as an endorser but the rest of the world you can that i think is going to provide a problem that's a slightly different one than current athletes
0: yeah and and you know beyond the athletes and even beyond the celebrities wagering is now content you could have a successful podcast on on playmaker and and you could have what we'd call what we i guess would define as personality, saying hey th- this is what i see tonight or the super bowl line has moved and this is what I like that's that's you know an implicit endorsement if not an explicit endorsement that's going to get into some slippery territory because again talking about the games and who's going to bet on what is now part of content whether it's great content or awesome content or terrible content probably depends on those personalities but it's content nonetheless
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look at someone like, you know, Eddie Olchuk, who does, you know, covers obviously the NHL with NBC previously. Now with TNT, he also does NBC's coverage of the Triple Crown. You know, he he might be described as a, you know, horse betting influencer beyond being a former NHL Mm -hmm. player. Mm -hmm. Is he someone that can't talk about sports betting? You can't talk about horse handicapping. If You look in the U.S., you know, Barstool Sports was acquired from from Penn National Gaming to be that kind of marketing arm for Penn National um you know those characters you know part of my takes the biggest sports podcast in the world the host of that show might be described as sports betting influencers are you going to say that they can't talk about sports betting or endorse a sports book I think that that piece will probably get carved out but I do think that the idea of having a current athlete endorsing sports betting in the broadcast on screen that sits really uncomfortably with a lot of people understandably and it ties back to what you're saying about the EPL I mean the largest logo on you know West Ham's jersey is Betway. Betway, you know, pays a lot of money for that. They like the exposure, but unlike other opportunities like you know people are taking that their their money, they're buying, you know, West Ham jerseys for their kids for Christmas and the kids are running around with Betway logos on. That does seem a little bit pervasive and does seem a little bit targeted towards the youth. And I do think that um gambling companies frankly would would recognize it and welcome regulation as long as it's consistent and easy to understand. They're not looking to um, you know, pervasively target people, I don't think. I think that they're just looking to work within the framework. If you tell them, hey, you're allowed to buy the jersey, well, guess that? That's a pretty good endorsement opportunity.
0: I would buy it too. Yeah, that's it. Adam Seaborn's head of partnerships at Playmaker Capital. There is a little bit of this element that is sort of oh you know what do we do shouldn't we think of the children here but many people have pushed back and said we don't allow you to open an account if you're under 18 the same way we wouldn't endorse you know you to you know we, we can't have austin matthews saying drink uh you know drink molson canadian on a commercial at Scotiabank arena during the game but i don't think gambling is smoking and i don't think gambling is drinking some people might disagree with that, but that that's exactly what where we're going to get to. And given that the ads, there's one thing, it's one thing for there to be a 30 second ad and you say, well, we can't allow those. But again, they're perforated all throughout the content of the games. Are we going to stop, you know, Cabral Richards from who's well known from saying this is what's happening and this line's moving in this Canucks Flames game? I, then you're cutting into into the content. And I got to think even the broadcasters would push back and say, you know, stay in your lane here. Well, exactly. And
4: let's just remember, why is sports betting now legal in Ontario when it wasn't beforehand? It was because there was too much black market activity happening in Canada where offshore sports books were penetrating the market, reaching people digitally in channels that the Canadian government and the US government, for that matter, had a really hard time maintaining so people could go on to illegal sports books. People Mm -hmm. were betting to the tunes of tens of billions of dollars in Canada anyways. So the government said, "Okay, this is happening already, not you know, different from prohibition in the alcohol era. Let's find a framework that we can have responsible consenting adults can participate in the market. We're going to create a bunch of tax revenue and jobs in Ontario, and we're going to have these regulations in place. I mean, before the regulations were in place in Ontario, you had offshore books who had Absolutely no responsible gaming messaging out there. No caps on how much you could wager. No verification of age happening. And they were targeting people digitally with bonus structures, which you can't do now. They were saying, you know, if you bet five hundred dollars, we'll guarantee you a thousand dollars. They were using really pervasive language. So now that it's legalized. Trust me, although you might be seeing it in Hockey Night in Canada in a way that you didn't used to, it is a safer
0: framework right now than it was previously. The Washington Capitals are a team that has Caesar Sportsbook on their on their jerseys. Um I, I think as I mentioned, betting's just been a little more baked in for decades in um in in the English culture and certainly the European football culture. They've also had their share of professional scandals with players getting caught betting. Um, Do you look and say this is something where Gary Bettman kind of like you said, he kind of didn't just stick a toe in the water. He put he put both feet in when he decided to allow not just in-house betting, but allow a sports book to sponsor a jersey. What do you think he thinks of this English Premier League decision?
4: Well, the cat's a little bit out of the bag on the on the jerseys, right? And, and think about—I think you know—Batman and, and Adam Silver to to a degree of follow the NFL's lead. And the NFL has decided that they they kind of slowly tipped in, but they are going to allow sports books in some stadiums coming up. So is the NBA and the NHL has a framework in place for that as well. So as you described, being able to go to an EPL game and go up to a betting window and, and get your ticket—that's going to happen mm-hmm. uh, to some degree in North America. That is happening as we speak. So um, the cat is a little bit out of the bag there. It is a net new large revenue stream for these teams and leagues. So if you're in for a penny in for a pound, as long as it's within the framework, you know, this EPL decision is just going to lead to uh, no jersey sponsorship in Major League Baseball and, and the NBA and NHL. It may. I'm not sure that Gary Bettman or the NHL would actually have a problem with that. You got to remember, like, the jersey sponsorship is what we all see is a big part of it, but that is a minuscule, minuscule f- fraction of the ad spend and the revenue that they generate from sportsbook partners. I mean, the data alone is a big part of it. Just selling the access to the API so that you can have live lines. So if you're going on a sportsbook right now and you live bet, you'll see the lines moving, you know, dramatically faster mm-hmm. than you can even see the game moving. That's because there's a data agreement in place with sportsbooks and the league. So there's mm. revenue being generated outside the Jersey patch. It is kind of the most pervasive one. It's one that probably might not be here in a couple of years, uh, much like the EPL.
0: I just wonder, if I wonder in the NHL, NBA, um, there aren't too many NBA teams losing money, but there are several in the NHL. But- Newcastle's got this deal with with fun eight eight and Newcastle incredibly rich team a lot of controversy around it because the owners are in Saudi Arabia now but their deal is worth 8.1 million dollars U.S. for the fun 88 scenario now an NHL owner may hear that and say we should put the logo on the side and put the (laughs) and put the name of the betting company on the front if it's worth that much money that's a couple players that could be the difference between turning a profit and not for some of these teams.
4: Well, definitely. And don't forget, it wasn't that long ago that we didn't have any uh, in, in the NHL going back to North America. We didn't have any logos on the helmets until a couple years ago. Yeah. The idea of having a, a patch on the jersey, people did really wring their hands about that. Now it seems pretty baked in. So uh, there's no doubt that, that pro sports leagues look around to other pro sports leagues and they say, oh, how are these guys generating revenue? Is there a way that I mm-hmm. can do the same? Are we ever going to get the Toronto Maple Leaf logo small in the top left corner? We're going to have a giant, you know, uh, <laughs> Dairy Farmers of Ontario logo in the middle. I don't think we're going to get to that place in the NHL. I just think that the hockey sweater and, and with the NBA and NFL too, I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, but I, I, I don't hmm. disagree with you. I mean... Every single sport is finding new ways to monetize, and and they're trying to find ways to generate more revenue. That is their their job. These are not public institutions. The, I, we think of sports sometimes because we have an emotional connection to mm-hmm. it. The Toronto Maple Leafs are my team. The Blue Jays are our team, the city's team. These are private businesses who are run to generate a profit, and they are competing with other private businesses, often owned by billionaires who don't care about the bottom line, who are also looking to win. So it's a hyper-competitive space that
0: needs to spend a lot of money and also generate a lot of money. Yeah, that's it. Adam Seaborn, Head of Partnerships at Playmaker Capital. Thanks for giving us your insight on this topic. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Greg. You too. Awesome to have uh, Adam Seaborn on. He makes some great points. Again, it's one thing to say to Austin Matthews, hey, you're playing in the games. You can't endorse a betting company. But you got, what, 60-year-old, 61-year-old Wayne Gretzky who has no affiliation to any team. Why can't he be in a commercial? I think that's, <laughs> that's going to be hard for a comp or an actor. Or a television host. I I don't know how they're going to be able to get around that and suggest we're going to limit who you pick to endorse your product. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady, Toronto's news, today's talk, six forty Toronto. We're very pleased to welcome on our next guest. She has certainly uh, been on the show before several times, and she. Uh, has a very unique post. This post was created in the last couple of years. And out of all the Canadians in Canada, she was chosen to represent, um, to be the Canadian representative for combating Islamophobia by the federal government. She is Amira El-Gawabi. Amira, it is great to have you back on Toronto today. I hope you're well. Thanks very much for making the time.
5: Well, good morning, Greg. Thanks so much for having me on the show again.
0: Absolutely. I know uh, I know there have been so many issues, and it feels like you just need to do a quick Google search or um, you know, just, just listen long enough to the radio or watch television long enough. And we've got religious threats all over the place, it feels like, in in Canada. Um, we had a second potential hate-motivated incident at a Markham mosque in less than a week. Not the same mosque. Police don't think the incidents are... Connected. Um, what's your reaction to this? the The concept is is obviously grotesque in nature that people would go somewhere, seek sanctuary, pray, um, and and feel that sense of threat. And it's no good. It's a huge reason why you're doing the work you're doing.
5: Yeah, no, that's right, Greg. Um, certainly, uh, you're absolutely correct in noting that. Um, whether it's mosques, whether it's synagogues, even churches and other places of worships, temples, et cetera, that unfortunately hate crimes across Canada, including those targeting religious communities, have been on the rise. Um, And when it comes to Muslims in Canada, we've seen um, police-reported hate crimes go up by 71% between 2020 and 2021. So absolutely, there is uh, quite some concern out there. Um, And that's only what we know. Uh, Police-reported hate crimes represent a very small number of what people themselves have said to Statistics Canada that they've been victim to. Um, And just this month of Ramadan, um, where people are gathering more frequently almost every night at mosques for prayers and and, um, reflections during the the fasting month, um, we've had several incidents now um, being reported. Um, Just even the other night, we've heard about now a potential alleged hate crime in a kitchener uh, against two kitchener women who were leaving a mosque and then were followed by an individual who allegedly um, pointed a gun at them. So, you know, these reports, of course, need to be verified and investigated by police, but certainly um, do create uh, quite a bit of concern and, of course, anxiety amongst uh, people who simply want to just go pray and spend some time um, reflecting in that way.
0: Amir al Gawabi is our guest on 640 Toronto. Some of what deters people from... Doing something like this is the punishment or it's the certainty of being caught. Um, it, it's the same. You know, I could use the example. We, we, we would probably all speed if we weren't worried about getting speeding tickets. This is a lot more um, a lot more troubling. There's no question about it. Is there anything you see in what we're doing with enforcement or protection that is just not serving as a powerful enough deterrent for uh, for hate crimes?
5: Mm-hmm. Well, I think what communities have been saying for a long time has been that we really do want to um, not only be able to report to police and have these um, concerns and worries and incidents, you know, investigated thoroughly as potential hate crimes. Uh, but we also want to consider where whether there may be other ways that we can report where communities who are targeted um, may be able to report that, that is a third place. So not necessarily the police, because, of course, not everyone is comfortable always to go to the police for a variety of reasons. Reasons, um, mm-hmm. And so there have been some movements, you know, I mentioned Kitchener just now uh, there, the K- Kitchener Muslim uh, Waterloo Coalition, they have actually put together um, an online reporting tool for for women to be able to come for it. And anyone actually, uh, if they want to report um, a hate incident that they've experienced and they're, they they don't want to go to the police. So there has to be other ways to capture this. And then, and then they may get support. To later go to police, if they do want it investigated. So on that front, on reporting, we need some work. Um, and then on the other side, with police, um, certainly uh, what has been constantly um, been discussed is you know better training for police officers on how to uh, properly identify when um, an incident could be motivated by that hate bias. Uh, because unfortunately, what we've you know heard over the years and continue to hear um, is when individuals go and report these types of crimes, uh, they're not always taken um, as Perhaps as they should, although we have, you know, lately seen a lot more interest in doing that. And and currently, for instance, the Canadian Race Relations Foundation has a partnership with um, the RCMP and the National Association of Chiefs of Police to have a hate crimes task force to look at these issues and try to create standardized training and standardized reporting. So there's there's very mm. positive movements uh, that we've been seeing to address these issues, but unfortunately, you know, uh, the the reality remains that for whatever reason, is it the online space where very dangerous and, uh, you know, hateful messages and narratives are being spread that are perhaps influencing individuals to act out on these prejudices and, and, and stereotypes and, and racist ideas? You know, is that where we also need more uh, work? And certainly the federal government, we're, we're waiting to see their online safety bill. So there's such a variety of, of issues really at play here. Um, but at the center of it are these communities who, you know, every time a uh, potential hate Crime or hate incident happens, it sends a very frightening message to the rest of the community. It's not just yeah. that individual that experiences it, or a place of worship that gets vandalized. It, it you know, it, it really does send a message uh, mm. that I think the vast majority of Canadians would want to help counter to say, no, that's not That's not the country we want to live in. And, and that's not what the vast majority of people feel.
0: I know. I, I, it's it's like I'm, I'm of two minds. I'm, I'm of the mind that so many people want to come here because it's safer than where they live. I think this is a fantastic country where, where, honestly, there's more of a level playing field than so many other countries, including other democracies. And yet at the same time, I look and I go, some of the evolution of words we shouldn't use, things we, should, we we absolutely can't. We not only don't say out loud ourselves, we can't let others say out loud. I think it's really tough for the governments to legislate how people are going to feel and act. But these are things that get fixed in our own homes, on our own streets, in our own schools. And it's just not moving fast enough for some people, clearly. I, I'm one of those people It's not moving fast enough for
5: yeah, no, and I think that's wonderful, Greg, in that sense of allyship that you're expressing. I think, you know, there's, a, as I said, you know, Canada does, uh, really have a lot of beautiful values of pluralism, of inclusion, and to celebrate such a, such diversity, which is so important for us to continue to preserve uh, the democratic values that we have, where everyone can you know freely worship, freely participate, freely express themselves, and be who they are, and successfully contribute. I mean, this is you know this is an incredible project that we have here in Canada, and it's one that we need to protect, is one that we need to nurture. And when you have a you know a small minority of individuals, and, 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 and this is a small minority of people who are trying to disrupt that who are trying to erode that and are acting out on you know unfortunately stereotypes biases uh, racist ideas that they that they are finding very likely online uh we really need to figure out ways to counter that to you know you know before they act of course but then if they do act you're right uh, as you mentioned earlier there has to be some consequences here so that people understand that Mm -hmm. no we're going to preserve um safe communities for everyone
0: Al gawabi is Canada's first special representative on combating Islamophobia she's joining us on 640 Toronto I got about a minute here I'd be remiss if I didn't say that um your appointment was uh got off to a to a non-rocky start sometimes nothing ever goes as planned I'd love to know from your perspective whether things have settled you've been able to do the work you want to do you've been able to to listen and, and and as well to to conversations about some of the, the the issues around you you had great support from the Prime minister great support from bibe uh, across parties lines. How has it been for you settling into the job?
5: Well, I think, you know, within the first 30 days of starting the job, I actually went back to London, Ontario, where uh, very sadly the Afzal family, as as many of your listeners will recall, uh, were killed uh, as they were out for a neighbourhood walk, um, you know, just about two years ago um, in a a uh, hate-motivated attack. Um, And I went back to communities there because the call to create this office to combat Islamophobia really came so strongly from that community that said, you know, we're Sadly, there's, there are deadly consequences to Islamophobia, and we need, uh, mm. you know, we need an office where it can be studied and understood. So I went back there, um, and I received so much support and encouragement for what this office can do. And when we address Islamophobia, we're actually addressing all forms of hate, because the solutions to address one form of racism and discrimination really apply to all other forms. So I yeah. really look forward to working with the Special Envoy on Anti-Semitism, who also has an office yeah. in the, with the federal government and other communities, to address the hate that really has no place in our country
0: amira thanks so much for the time today and you know anytime uh, you're uh, in toronto visiting and working uh, you're welcome here in studio for a longer conversation i appreciate you coming on today and have a great weekend
5: thanks so much greg welcome back. amira
0: el gawabi joining us